Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time, we'll continue the sad story from the last episode about how stuff was lacking in the Soviet Union. And as this part is, well, quite a bit different from the deficit and the deficit of goods, I wanted to put it in a, in a separate episode. And next time, we're doing the interview part. And then we're going to be back to politics because, oh boy, I've been doing quite a lot. I got published in the Foreign Policy magazine, mind you. If you Google up Christoph Sandreissons, then you can find me there. I've also been writing for a um, local media source, TVN.LV, and moving, and dealing with health issues. So it's been a complete mess. But I'm trying hard, so the episodes will be out on time. Well, at least February, I hope. (laughs) And, uh, well, it's gonna be good. However, this is um, a story about how the USSR tried to fix things, and how that didn't happen. Oh, and we'll get to all the news with Ukraine as well. It's getting a bit rough. Any rate, on April the 2nd, 1981, there was a sharp jump in prices in the USSR. On the basis of the decree of the president and the resolution of the cabinet of ministers, goods and services rose in price by two to five times, and sometimes even ten times. At the same time, the salary increased by only 20 to 30 percent. The compensation, one-time compensation, which people were given, was 60 rubles, which looked like a mockery for the Soviet people. This rise in prices and this compensation was the second stage of the so-called Pavlovan reform, to withdraw excess money from the population, which was supposed to stop the deficit that we spoke about last time and ultimately save the country. Instead, the reform became one of the reasons for the end of the USSR. Thankfully, we have quite a lot of eyewitness stories from that era. This this is going to be an interesting one. I hope that you don't succumb to panic buying, and um, maybe this will make you think a bit about um, weird economical tendencies of how prices can regulate things and uh, 
how they can lead to some completely unexpected consequences when things are done for mostly purely political reasons and when crisis gets utterly, completely mismanaged. See, this was an interesting time. There was a currency reform going on, whose initiator was the Minister of Finance. Shortly before that, it was approved by the Prime Minister of the USSR, Valentin Sergeyevich Pavlov. He intended, using the surprise effect, to carry out a ruble reform and stabilize monetary circulation in the USSR. Although Pavlov's order was preceded by his own public insurances, there would be no monetary reform. And uh, the reform was aimed at getting rid of the excess money supply that was in cash circulation, because at that point, Soviets had decided to increase the prices and to just print out money. Which was interesting, because, well, in 1988, they had basically admitted to the world, during Perestroika, that they had a massive budget deficit over insane periods of time, but that situation is getting better. And they did it in an article to New York Times, no less. So, what was their solution to that problem? To look better and to try to fix everything that had piled up? Well, they just started printing out money. With their fixed prices and everything. But that just exacerbated and made completely worse the already hard deficit. That became an even bigger problem than the fact that they had been running a budget deficit previously and that they had to balance everything out. This was um, complete craziness. Pavlov was basically trying to prepare a comprehensive pricing reform as well, with a phased price liberalization. But only this first step was carried out of this plan. The formal reason for the reform was officially declared by the party that it would be a fight against counterfeit rubles allegedly imported into the Soviet Union from abroad. In addition, the reform was supposed to freeze unearned income. Funds from the shadow sector of the economy. The ones gained from um, speculators, corrupt officials, all that stuff. That obviously went down um, as well as one might expect, really. The initiator of the reform, Pavlov, two weeks before it began, when everything had already been prepared but kept very secret, declared the whole country that the government was not planning anything of the kind. But on the evening of January 22nd, 1991, on central television. It was announced that 50 and 100 ruble banknotes of the 1961 model were withdrawn from circulation. Citizens were then given three days to exchange them, and no more than 1,000 rubles could be exchanged. At the same time, the amount of cash available for withdrawal at the Sberbank of the USSR, which was kind of central branch for private people, if the name still, you know, rings a few bells, then that's still, well, the central bank of the Russian Federation. It was limited, this withdrawal from of cash, limited to 500 rubles per month per depositor. And um, since citizens could have more than one kind of checkbook, notes were made on the last pages of their passports among the amounts withdrawn from their accounts. Like I said, the goal of the reform was to reduce the money supply that was in cash circulation which, according to creators of this reform, could possibly solve a ton of USSR problems. In practice, of course, the deficit did not disappear. Those close to the authorities and criminals survived the confiscatory part of the reform without significant losses. And as usual, ordinary citizens paid the price and suffered the most. But the worst was yet to come. So, you know, 
so that this wouldn't look like an April Fool's joke, the second stage of the Pavlovian reform was scheduled on April the 2nd. On this day, prices for goods and services were centrally raised three times on average, from uh, two to ten times. This did not save the collapsing economy, and the government finally lost the last trust of the people. A wave of strikes broke out across the country. The days of the Soviet Union were truly numbered. But to shift away from the academical part, this podcast, after all, is about people's history and um, people's studies, is what I really want to share here. Leonid Novikov, from Fomin District in St. Petersburg. I remember the Pavlov's monetary reform very well. Grandma ran to the savings bank to exchange some banknotes, and there already were other grandmas in line, and they were fighting to the death. The rest of our family were not greedy for money. Anyway, it was no longer possible to buy anything special for the money, so they remained with us as candy wrappers. But there was great crying everywhere. It added grey hair to people. Imagine, you had money, and suddenly it was gone. It looked like a huge scam. But on April the 2nd, we somehow didn't even notice that. In memory, there's a recollection that everything began to rise in price, but not sharply. Not in one day. Yes, sugar immediately took off. Men stood in lines for vodka. There were battles near the shops. Almost in any district of the city, there was a huge flea market near the wine departments. Dismal, very dismal lines. As for, for example, meat, it was as if there wasn't much of it. Perhaps because of the fact that, well, very few items were in the stores, I don't remember the sharp increase in prices. No one really had cancelled the deficit in itself. And um, then I had to go in the store with um, this calling card of the buyer. It was um, sort of a business card, and without it you couldn't buy anything. You could take 200 grams of sausage, no more at a time, and so on. It was just these calling cards that basically showed that you were a registered buyer and you could buy something. That was another method of combating the deficit. This was issued in the housing office for tenants of each apartment. You received it, signed it, and went shopping. Lost this card? Come on, goodbye, nothing. So that uh, strangers from other districts and from the region wouldn't climb on us. In the stores there were artistically laid out huge cans of herring, several times frozen and thawed dumplings, Ruski, which had to be torn off from a cardboard box with shreds of paper. A classic. And there was an unforgettable smell of cabbage and rotten onions. And uh, any pineapple that could even be spotted was perceived as a real bomb. How about a pineapple? Well, the Pavlovan reform literally knocked the stool out from under people's feet. Even though there was essentially nothing to buy with money, there was a certain sense of stability. They thought, well, I have money, I'm a wealthy person, my turn will come, I'll buy a car. My turn will come and I'll get an apartment. We'll buy some cheap car and fur coat for my wife. Some dreams were destroyed by this faint. You turned out to be, well, left to be a naked and barefoot builder of communism. This is crazy. We had no idea back then how it would end. I hoped that everything would be different, but how different? Ah, who knows. It was just crazy period for... All of us there. Alexei Lutich from Moscow, who used to be a law enforcement officer in 1981, says the following. Gorbachev knew nothing about economics. So they found Pavlov. He was considered a very promising young economist. They had a plan for the transition to capitalism, albeit a rather crude one. 
withdrawal of money was just the first stage. Fight against underground millionaires. They needed the right people to come, and that it was they who led the future capitalism, and not the underground Koreans. Pavlov himself was from comedy circles. Well, they owned information, and they weren't fools and they took advantage of it. Cash flows were regulated in such a way that later they would be at the head of banks and financial groups that still run everything to this day. And for those who could accumulate unearned income, what were they to do with it? You couldn't buy foreign currency, you couldn't buy real estate. So they accumulated them in pieces of paper for 50 and 100 rubles. They were meant to be taken away. And we had to control the exchange process. We were sorted into groups of three or four people, preferably not very familiar with each other. They gave out sealed packages with the names of organizations where they had to go. The groups included employees of the OBHSS, the Department for Combating the Theft of Socialist Property. Law enforcement agencies, employees of the District Executive Committee. Our task was to control the delivery of money in organizations through which cash passed. Pharmacies, ateliers, waste collection points, dry cleaners, hairdressers. We had to make sure that banknotes of 50 and 100 rubles were not laundered there. Everything was immediately sealed with us. But it turned out mostly ordinary people suffered. Crime didn't care. Their money was invested in a different way. They probably changed the money somewhere at the very top. The next step was to increase the prices of certain goods that were luxury goods and which could also be used to accumulate funds. And here too the wrong ones suffered. The hard workers who worked in the north, the military, the miners. They needed to invest the money they had earned before it disappeared. At that time, it was possible to buy a foreign car only in automobile commission shops. This is a a very extremely late USSR. We had the highest concentration of them in Moscow at the South Port. They had to carry money in cash because the savings bank did not give out more than 500 rubles a month. And criminals took advantage of this. People came to buy a car. They were calculated, taken account of, met, and on the way from the airport, they were brought into the forest and killed. Over 200 people died this way. I know this because I was involved in the Southport criminal gang. Nothing good came out of these reforms. They tried to take control of the new forces of capitalism that had gone out of control, declared the state emergency committee, and everything was covered with a copper basin. Such was the 1991, as I remember it. Also, Guzairova, also from Moscow. In 1991, I lived in Izmailovo and went to school. I remember the adults discussing the upcoming price increase, and although I did not delve into their conversations, I was wondering how this would happen. April 1st was a Monday. It was cloudy and cold. My friend Lenka and I, immediately after school, went to the metro for ice cream. And we always went for it after school, even in winter. We came to the stall, there's ice cream of all kinds. Well, they were surreal. Our favorite waffle club, which was always 20 kopecks, was now over 60. An extra cup, 28 kopecks, more than 80. Ice cream that used to cost 48 kopecks, more than a ruble. Everything had tripled in price. We wanted to take the cheapest fruit in a glass ice cream for 7 kopecks. And uh, for two servings, two cents were not enough. It had been before. And so we had to go home. Without the ice cream, of course. Pyotr Kamenchenko from Moscow. I spent the February and March of 1981 in the USA. Operation Desert Storm was underway, and I was just collecting material for my dissertation on PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder. In April, I returned to Moscow and, uh, well, didn't learn much. Official prices for basic necessities rose by four to seven times. 
This hadn't happened in the USSR, not to such degree. But this was the deficit, the consequences of it. The deficit had been extra hard, both in 1989 and in 1990. And black market prices had been long time, several times higher than the store prices. But uh, this devaluing of people's salaries, pensions and savings several times in one day, this had never happened before. And uh, at the same time, the amount of goods in the stores didn't increase. It was very difficult to buy something, even with these new prices. In April, my mother called through a village in the Kalinin region and said that she managed to buy meat, half a sheep, and it was considered a huge success. My supervisor, Professor Vorobyov, and I immediately got together and went to get it. Spring had not yet come to the village, butchered the meat right in the snow. We put the pieces in the backpacks. Standard military-type backpacks with pockets, there were no others back then. In the train, the meat thawed out and the juices flowed out from the backpacks. People watched in horror as a puddle of blood gathered under the bench. And at that time, we were solving an almost impossible task. How to stuff this precious meat into tiny freezers of Soviet refrigerators? Because it was no longer possible to keep it on the balcony. It would go rotten. Oh, yeah, and the refrigerators had to stand in line for them as well. A lot of people had a special closet room in their apartments with a hole in the wall where they could store food in the winter, by the way. I, uh, by the way, myself, and hey, speaking as your host here, Kristaps, and this is a personal study from my life. Yeah, my apartment where I grew up used to used to have one too. It was a weird experience because I thought everyone had such storage rooms, but not just for dry goods, for anything and everything. In winters, you didn't really use the fridge. My grandmother kept using it even after we got a refrigerator ourselves. Apparently that was um, some sort of weird tradition. So I can understand their worries about not even knowing where to put them, and so its refrigerators truly had extremely tiny freezers. Not like you had much to put into them. And um, another story connected with the 1981 deficit, and I'm continuing Pyotr Kaminchenko's story here. Quote, In the summer of that year, we went on a canoe trip in the Arhangelsk region. Over the year, we had accumulated the supply of scarce stew, condensed milk, and soups in bags. The wife of one comrade worked as a commodity manager at the base. Commodity manager, if you remember from previous episode, is the guy who gets you the stuff. Because even the stores and factories weren't really supplied. But um, we didn't calculate for sugar. It turned out to be completely unrealistic to buy sugar in local general stores. There was no bread, cigarettes, and even matches in the stores, but sugar was there for just crazy high prices. And uh, in one magazine, on completely empty shelves, we suddenly saw jelly in briquettes. Pretty poisonous stuff made from cranberry essence with sugar and starch. But as children, we all wanted it because we didn't have sweets. We were standing discussing how many briquettes to buy, and the saleswoman heard us and said, Boys! This jelly is only for pregnant women, and only for coupons. That's how we lived. Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at russansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to russansov.com and happy shopping! 
If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But not all stories came from Moscow. This is Sergei Chernikin from Tbilisi. That's Georgia, and uh, his story, quote. In 1981, I lived in Tbilisi with a new wife, a child, and the need to pay alimony. By the time, Georgia had already been independent for half a year, and by that time had begun to overthrow the president, Zivad Gamshahudria. It was a complete mess. So, first you go to rallies, then you lie behind an armored personal carrier under fire, then you rush out from under this armored personal carrier. They shout at you, where are you going? And you yell, hey, my line for oil is coming up. But in Georgia, this period was not so terrible. We could bear it easier. It was basically this, like this old saying, hey, the grass has gone, the Georgians will not die. But when I went to the RSFSR, the Russian Federation, it was hard. Eggs and bread and railway buffets, not enough money for anything more. In Moscow, Queues lined up for everything when something was thrown away. Here was the line for some sour schmurdak, which was a Chilean drink for huge money. You could get two bottles each. First by references, then second will by coupons. Everything gradually became organized by coupons, right down to soap and light bulbs. And of course, on April the 2nd, the prices for bread were raised four times as well. They lived on bread here. If we talk about why almost no one remembers the April price increase, but they clearly remember the Pavlovan monetary reform, then it should be taken into account that then we already had the beginning of some kind of capitalism. And therefore it was possible to somehow spin, bargain, knock down purchase price radically. At least in Georgia. It was still possible to live with the market. Merchants understood that if today they have 10 rubles on the price tag and tomorrow 100, then no one will buy anything from them. In addition, well... The Soviet way of life, when there is nothing in the stores, but you somehow manage at home, well, that still worked, because the deficit hadn't gone anywhere. And uh, some people tried to do their own entrepreneurship. 
Others sat down and began to whine, and whined, and at the end, no one had anything to eat. Basically, everyone just decided to go back to their old ways. There were then again those who said, to hell with all this, well, we'll starve for a few years, then everything will be fine. It was all crazy. My brother-in-law from his second marriage, for example, was sitting at the same enterprise at the same job and said, here are my hands of gold, and these fucking Gorbachev and Yeltsin ruined such a country, and who needs me now? And there were tens of millions of them, they waited for blessed paternalism to return, and others worked, worked hard, found some places. Moscow and St. Petersburg in this regard differed greatly from the provinces. The province is a tin can, there's nowhere to go, there is no work, there is nothing to live on. Businesses continued to operate there, some of them, but with difficulty. No one raised salaries because there was nothing to raise them from, there was no resource for this. And people in some random Voronezh, where there is, say, a huge aircraft factory and other factories, are they going to go sell their planes abroad somewhere? Huh. Obviously. That is FSR is not up to planes. That's all, the people have nowhere to go. This was all crazy. But the worst part definitely was in the regions. Moscow and Petersburg managed to pull through somehow. Talking about Moscow stuff. Well, kind of want to end this on a slightly good note, you know. Polina Vladimirskaya remembers. On March the 4th, 1981, I turned 18 years old. Somewhere in the mid-80s, my grandparents sold their dacha for a thousand rubles. And this money was put on my account until my 18th birthday. In the fall of 1990, I entered the institute, how the universities were often called back then. And what do you want to do in the first year? Well, of course, you want to get properly dressed and look cool. Therefore, I was waiting for my birthday just like manna from heaven. And as soon as it came, I immediately went to the savings bank. My second grandmother was very offended by me. How dare you? Grandma and Grandpa saved up all their lives, bought a dacha, then sold it for you, and now you're wasting everything. But I was persistent. For this thousand, I bought a watch. Chinese made, cheap one. But then again, in the 90s, there was nothing to get at all. More American leggings and jeans. Well, naturally everything was in the hands of the black market people whose prices have already slowly began to grow. The last purchase was fake leather shoes, which my friend's dad brought from America. I kept doubting whether to take them. Or not to take them, maybe I could see something better in the stores. But they seem to be normally made. Not in China. My size, but all around for huge money. Oh boy, it was tough. And you know what? I did buy them, exactly on the April the 1st. And then the next day, a thousand rubles were no longer a thousand. I wouldn't be able to buy a dacha myself. By the way, the grandmother who put pressure on my brain because of what I bought lost quite a lot of money. Grandfather was the deputy head of the internal affairs directorate and one of his friends back in the winter when the story began with an exchange of 1500 ruble bills offered to change cash for dollars. Grandfather saw a few dollars in his life and only once went abroad to Czechoslovakia, so he thought for a long time. At the last moment, well, some prices still changed. And, uh, he didn't get them. And now, now it was on the collection books. Yeah, all of that was gone, and all the changed money just, well, we lost all of it. And then the grandmother said, well, turns out the granddaughter turned out to be way smarter than us. Again, not an easy story, but hey, at least some people got out of there more or less safe, more or less intact, and it was not absolutely terrible for everyone. Of course, all of this basically meant that the Soviet Union didn't really hold out long after that, ended up completely and finally on the December 25th, 1991. Gorbachev really 
gave power over to Yeltsin, and then there was the putsch in August, but still. These were the beginnings of extremely dire times. It was brutal back then. You know, this was just the early 90s. 90s would last for a while, you know, and it was a period of mass crime and gangs and all sorts of nasty dealings. Those people who had managed to smuggle in dollars somehow or or some other foreign currency which actually held some real value, yeah, they managed to pull through. But this hit everyone hard. This was quite insane. This was one of the one of the worst things that could happen to Swiss people because, again, there was perestroika, and if you recall, 1986 had Chernobyl happen, and then in 89 the Afghanistan war ended, and all those people came back home, and they were pretty damaged. And then this whole price reform thing that, oh boy, had gone terribly south. This was a hard time and bred a lot of hard people. Really difficult period for everyone, really. But somehow... People struggled on and survived. This is why, you know, when we read in the news that somewhere in the West people are panic buying toilet paper and whatnot. Yeah, you know, we've been through that. And then in Lafayette later on, after the ruble had gone through a lot of reforms, we had our own monetary reform. In 1983, when we got our own Latvian ruble, which was then exchanged into lots, just to get out of this whole monetary reform thing and all the devastation that that had caused. Our exchange rate was even more dreadful. To get our old currency lots to super high standards, it was exchanged for 200 rubles per one lot. So this is interesting, and if you think about it, because the salaries were already in a weird position, and, well, prices had massively increased. But so we in Latvia were hit once again even harder. So if you listen to some of my earlier episodes, there was one about our first McDonald's that opened there. I remember even back in 1997, uh, 50 cents was the cost for a hamburger. And 50 cents didn't seem much by today's standards at all, but back then, yeah, those 50 cents, they were like equivalent to basically 100 rubles. It was crazy because, well, that was a lot of money. And a lot of people didn't get paid really well. Yeah, we've been through a lot, and, you know, one thing that I'm sure of. If um, some devastating disaster and disturbances come up once again in the future, we will manage to survive everything, you know, like we usually have. Pretty difficult, but somehow I think that we'll, we'll make it, definitely. All in all, I uh, really just, you know, wanted to make sure that you know that we've seen worse, and I've seen worse, and we'll get through all of this. But these people's studies... Hope you learned something interesting from it. At any rate, next episode is going to be an interview about a book, which is an interesting book. It's uh, one where a PhD from the United States has written a book about how he, well, has examined the um, influences of the Orthodox faith on Stalin and how that basically built up all of the Soviet system and how, well, this Orthodox tradition is just as strong, if not stronger, as the Marxist tradition. That's going to be an interesting conversation. But up until then, please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash border, or just go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and click on the little donate button there. I am still writing some stuff for everything that I can, and, you know, pulling through myself. So, it's going to be fine. At any rate, dasvidanya, tvarish. Oh, and remember, happiness is mandatory.
Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.